Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hello, Nancy. Hi, we're welcoming back uh, part two of Dr. Saul Zelon. So happy to have you join us again, Saul. Of course. And uh, continue our conversation. Boy, the first episode, so interesting. Anyone listening, uh, tune in to both. Wow, this man has got a, a brain full of knowledge that is uh, over the top, really great. I know, I so, wish I had about a week. Yeah, exactly. Um, so as I said in the, the first part of this episode, we found Dr. Zelon through a search to find a professional to talk to about a topic that we really just hadn't covered specifically yet on this on Behind Our Door, uh, the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And when I asked and called Dr. Zelon and he agreed to come on, we ended up having such an interesting talk that I, I feel as though it would be a beneficial conversation today about just the gray areas, especially of something like borderline. No wonder we haven't had a discussion about it yet and with a professional because it's definitely not a cut and dry. This is the signs and symptoms and this is what you do. So it brought upon a really interesting conversation. Saul, let's take off and and describe. So when I say to you, you know, I, I think, what are the signs and symptoms of borderline personality disorder? That's a good place to start, perhaps. But then to go into um, a lot of the theories you were talking on the blurred lines, let's say. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, you and I, Nancy, were talking about, I think, the issue that has been raised, which is that uh, diagnosis in the mental health world can be very, very challenging. And I think you and I were talking about, I, I recall reading a study that indicated that, uh, for example, people who end up having the diagnosis of bipolar disorder oftentimes go to multiple providers before they are able to figure it out. And uh, this is significant. And I'm not saying that those initial providers were wrong or bad or missed something or anything like that. Um it's that it can be very, very confusing, I think, for both client and provider to sort out uh, the symptoms, the the presentation. Uh, and, and frustrating. Absolutely frustrating. <laughs> very frustrating. Absolutely frustrating. And it can take people, uh, you know, a significant amount of time sometimes to find both the diagnosis that makes sense and the treatment that works. And so... Uh, this is a challenge that we face in the mental health world. It is, it is also a challenge that one faces in the general medical world as well. And when I was training as a pediatrician, we certainly saw plenty of uh, families uh, presenting uh, with their children, experiencing symptoms that were difficult to figure out. So it's not like general doctors have it easy in some ways. But I do think that we face a problem in medicine that perhaps is more prominent, more common, perhaps, in the mental health world. And that's the problem that there is oftentimes uh, less what we might call objective, using air quotes there, objective data for us to kind of use as a compass or as a guide, as a map, as it were, towards the diagnosis. And uh, that can be very challenging um, because we are, we're working primarily with what people tell us. When we sit down with a client, we ask a lot of questions. We spend a lot of time listening to what they say. We take a lot of notes and we try and formulate a picture of what's going on. 
And that also happens in the general medical world as well. But then oftentimes a medical, a general medical practitioner can go on to order a test, mm-hmm. a lab test or an x-ray or a scan, an MRI or some other kind of scan or test. And those, of course, also have to be interpreted by people who are making interpretations. But we really don't have anything like that in the mental health world. We are uh, really bound by what gets reported to us. And in that process, there can be a lot of variation from person to person or time to time. In other words, the same client might, may say some one thing to one provider and another thing to another provider, or they may say one thing to one provider and then they meet with the same provider and they say something different. And this is not to say that clients are trying to um, fool anyone or manipulate anyone. It's to say that experience actually changes. People's experience actually does change. Um, and people's experience, uh, is also dependent on the context. So how someone is interviewed or how someone experiences the provider they're sitting with may influence what they actually report to that provider. And all of this results in something that psychologists, uh, who study this phenomenon have called noise, noise being variation in some kind of measurement that you wouldn't expect to, to show variation. And we experience, I think, a fair amount of noise in the medical profession in general, but in particular in the mental health world. And it's, it's a challenge that we have to face. It's interesting you say that because um, I know recently I've seen a lot of people taking their kids to get tested for ADHD. Sure. And I want to jump in on whatever forum and say, I don't think there's a real I'm sure there are some kind of tests that can indicate, but there's no real test that could be um, 100% accurate on that. Maybe I'm wrong, but. Yeah, well, we don't, what's important to understand is we don't, we don't have a blood test. Right. (laughs) That can tell us if someone has ADHD. Um, We do have some instruments that are used. uh, And by instruments, I mean, primarily surveys that are filled out by parents and teachers and other significant figures in the child's life. And those surveys have been studied so that we can hopefully ensure that they are reliable instruments for assessment and that they are valid. Um, And so they're studied pretty intensively by the, the folks that develop the assessment tools, we could perhaps call them as well. And those are useful. Those tools do help us reduce some of the noise in the system, and they hope hopefully help us uh, point us towards a more valid diagnosis. But they're not perfect. I mean, no test is perfect, um, but they do rely on people's subjective impression, and that that is something that we have to take into consideration in the mental health world. And I do believe that we face the challenge in a more um, significant way at times than providers in, in other medical fields. Diagnosis is, is really tough, especially I, I feel with children. I, I'm just thinking back on my own life with my son, um, you know, who was initially diagnosed with ADHD and, and ODD, oppositional defiance disorder. And then 
slowly after that, I think five years later, re-diagnosed with bipolar and probably still has some ADHD symptoms. And then later re-diagnosed with borderline and then back to, you know, I attribute some of that to his just growing and changing, you know, yeah. his personality changes, body changes, hormones, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, Nancy and I were talking previously about the ways in which this challenge shows up in the mental health world. And so one example is that I was talking to her about was the fact that if you take one of the diagnoses, say major depressive disorder, and you look at the diagnostic criteria in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, version 5, the DSM, you will see a list of signs and symptoms there. There, there will be a list of uh, nine signs and symptoms. And in order to meet the criteria for the diagnosis, you have to meet five out of nine of those symptoms, as well as some other criteria. It's not simply a symptom-based set of criteria, but um, there will be a list of symptoms, and you have to meet five of those nine symptoms for a certain period of time and under certain conditions, and there's a lot of qualifiers to take under consideration. But here's the interesting thing. Mathematically, uh, people have calculated that there are over 200 different ways to meet those criteria. If you look at a diagnostic system that requires you to meet five out of nine of a set of criteria, you can calculate the number of different ways those nine criteria can combine into a set of five, and there are over 200 different ways. So what that means is that people who receive the same diagnosis oftentimes are meeting very different definitions of the diagnosis. If you put 200 people in a room, they all meet, might meet the criteria for major depression uh, in 200 different ways. Now, there are certainly some combinations of those symptoms that show up more than others. People have studied that question because it's an important question to study. And they have found that there are certain combinations of those signs and symptoms that tend to show up more often than others. So it's, uh, I wouldn't say that it's complete, complete randomness. It is difficult at times to um, come up with a consistency and a reliability of diagnostic criteria. And that's just an example. I'm just talking about that as an illustration of what I have learned to call noise in the system. Mm -hmm. That is a lack of uh, consistent reproducibility from moment to moment or person to person where you would expect some kind of consistency. There, The consistency is lacking. With the study of noise, and I know you mentioned when we were talking about a book that was written called Noise on this noise, um, and more and more discussion among the professionals about this noise. Do you see do you see a path into the future of ways to take hold of this inconsistency in treatment? Do you think, you know, I mean, is there is there a common common effort among professionals to figure out how to hone in a little bit? Or is this just human nature that you're always going to have people that, you know, many different people with all of these, you know, they, like you say, 200 different ways to reach ma major depressive disorder. Is that just the way it's always going to be? Or is there a way to, that professionals are trying to um, make it a little easier? I mean, all of us, you know, what you're describing 
any family member or person themselves struggling with, with a mental, serious mental health issues, um, I would say more often than not has gone through that confusion and frustration. It's rare that you say, oh, you know what? I have, you know, something like instead of the way medically you discuss, you, you realize you have stomach problems and it's labeled, this is what it is with mental, with your mental health and behavioral health situations. I think there's always a, it's this, it's that, um, you know, ever changing. Yeah. That, that, uh, is there, do you think there's any future into, into making things more clear cut aside from blood tests? I mean, isn't there, there's a blood test, I think for schizophrenia, that's always in the works. Um, I'm not aware of those data. Um, I would have to, uh, I would have to, um, do a literature search on that particular question in regard to schizophrenia. But, but in general, is there a professional goal to try to reduce this noise or change this complicated, frustrating situation? Yeah, I think there is. And I think the development of, uh, of evaluation tools that I uh, alluded to earlier is one effort. Um, and is is one valid effort to try and reduce uh, the effect of noise in the system, um, because it, you at least have something that you can agree on. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I mean, it, you know, if we think about someone who goes to the doctor and they say, you know, I'm tired all the time and, um, you know, uh, I have trouble concentrating and and. Uh, you know, I have trouble uh, tolerating cold environments, the doctor might think, oh, I wonder if they have a problem with their thyroid. And they might do a test on the thyroid, they might do a blood test. Now, everybody in the room can look at that blood test and agree on what the blood test is saying, right? It might say 10 or 12 or something like that. Everybody can agree on that number. Not everyone's going to agree on how we should respond to that number. In other words, different doctors might recommend different courses of treatment. So the interpretation of the number may vary. But what the number is will be pretty clear. And I think there is an effort to kind of try and reproduce that kind of clarity in the mental health world with uh, what we might call evidence-based assessment tools, such as um, a validated uh, set of questions that are answered by a parent or a caregiver or a teacher. And we can then at least look at those set of questions and we can say, this person answered these questions in this way. We can agree on that. Now, again, the interpretation of that may vary from practitioner to practitioner, but at least now we have some set of questions that have been asked and answered in a specific way that we can agree upon. There's less noise there, at least. And I think any effort to reduce noise in the system improves our ability to help people. Yeah, it's encouraging. I mean, this is a very, for, for the lay person like myself, for us listening, um, I mean, just listening to this, it's encouraging. I feel like this is a, this is a huge positive for the future. I mean, it, right. it's nice to know that's a possibility. And where I see this going is similar to other areas of medicine where uh, we have realized that to a certain extent, our ability to help people is limited by our ability to process information. Um, And, you know, we as humans, our brains process information in a certain way, and sometimes that's very useful 
but there are very real limitations on our ability to process information. And computers process information in a different way. It's not necessarily better or worse, it's just different. And one of the advantages that um, wire and circuit brains have over organic brains like ours is that they can process huge amounts of data uh, in ways that we cannot. And so machine-assisted, machine-learning-assisted um, procedures and diagnostic assessments, I think, are becoming um, more prominent in fields of medicine, where you can have a computer assist your, uh, say, your radiologist uh, in looking at x-rays, and they may be able to detect um, anomalies that, that a, a human you know, just can't detect because we can't process that amount of data. And uh, so what we're doing when we give a parent questionnaire or a teacher a questionnaire is we're asking for a set of data. And then we look at that data and we use that data as a provider in comparison to other data we have from interviewing the client or interviewing the family. And we try and process all that data into some kind of diagnostic impression and treatment recommendation. But what if we could process even more data? What if a wire and circuit brain could take in orders of magnitude more data than the human brain can process? Would they be able to spot patterns that we can't spot? Yeah, wow. Interesting question. That, wow. I think, to me, wow. that's where the future is going. I see it yeah. happening in other fields of medicine, uh, so-called machine learning or I don't really like the term artificial intelligence, um, but just the ability to process data in a in a in a more efficient way and to take in larger and larger data sets to look for those patterns that may not emerge until you get to those very large data sets. Right. Wow. It's fascinating. Wow. I mean, super interesting. If you think about what the future holds, yeah, it could really change the realm of treating mental health in general. I believe it will because, uh, you know, the authors that I've read who write about noise um, have talked about the fact that, you know, when we when we turn over information processing to these wire and circuit brains that are not as 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 vulnerable to noise, we oftentimes get more accurate results when you compare the results from kind of more more algorithmic, that is more rule based approaches to the data. When you compare those results to the results that humans give, we oftentimes see a reduction in noise and an increase in accuracy. Now, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be very uncomfortable, I suspect, with this idea that decision-making may be turned over to the realm of computers and um, you know, wire and circuit brains. And I understand that. I mean, I understand yeah. people's comfort with that. Um, and you know, all I can say is that uh, as every generation goes along, that's where we're going. I mean, yeah. think about the amount of computing power that we all carry around in our backpacks these days. In our uh, hands, in the palm in our of hand, our hand. <laughs> compared to the amount of computing power that took people to the moon and back, it's remarkable. And we don't question the use of, of our cell phones anymore. We depend on our cell phones to get us places and give us directions. Um, and we don't question that anymore. Um, 
one can certainly talk about the adverse effects of modern technology on our on our emotional health, and that is a separate, very interesting topic. But I think that as we as technology advances and we get more comfortable with it, we we start to appreciate both the pros and cons. And I'm not saying it's all good. I'm saying that wire and circuit brains can do things that the human brain can't do. And we might want to make use of those technologies. Yeah. And and something for everybody. I mean, there's there's a time and a place for everything. But I guess when you're talking about human behavior, you hate to have it go to the computers. But to have this uh, noise and this, uh, you know, frustrating time, the frustrating experience of trying to figure out what this is and what to do over years with somebody, the clarification and shrinking that down to a more concise, this is a, what, this is what it could be. And this is a good idea to try sooner than later would be a tremendous improvement, especially the younger, the better. When you think of how, you know, you have to really wait sometimes years while somebody is growing, you know, adolescents are growing and changing and go through a lot of suffering in that um, back and forth and trying to figure out what to do and what this is, boy, to clarify it would make for a, you know, a a smoother path with this whole thing. Right. And, you know, ask, I think we have to ask ourselves right now, how, how are we doing now? Yeah. Good Uh, question. and how are we coping with this problem? Just the other day, I um, encountered, uh, I met with a new client who presented with some uh, signs and symptoms that really did not present a very clear diagnostic picture. And so I brought the I brought the case to my colleagues, and we all discussed it because one of the one of the ways that we we know or that these authors who have who have discussed noise have suggested, one way to reduce noise is to solicit alternative perspectives um, that groups of experts working together can oftentimes, um, to a certain extent, you know, it's like this wisdom of the crowd to a certain extent that noise sometimes gets reduced when you take into account multiple opinions about the same situation. So having a group conference between colleagues on on cases that are difficult to understand can be another way um, that we currently have to try and improve our our accuracy and try and try and reduce the noise in the system. Yeah, I was thinking about as you were speaking. Um, what about the? I hate to distinguish between the two, but what about the like medical field and the psychiatric field, kind of combining that information? You were speaking about thyroid, which thyroid can cause all kinds of issues in a person, you know, right. mood issues, anxiety, depression. Um, I feel like these two worlds aren't connected. Do you think those two worlds will then be able to come together better? I think they should come together now. I mean, I think that agreed, but <laughs> my, most, my most critical partner in, in the mental health world is oftentimes well, I have two critical partners. One is uh, the community of therapists who work to address the behavioral concerns and help people learn new behaviors. Um, and then the other critical partner is the primary care provider who helps me uh, assess and rule out some of these general medical conditions that can present with behavioral and psychiatric signs and symptoms. Those, those are the critical partners in the world of mental health, in my opinion. 
I agree, but there's still such a disconnect between them. You know, um, there's still a lot of pediatricians who are giving out psychiatric medication. I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong, but mm. I I think it for for me personally, it, it didn't not work out very well because they yeah. put them on the wrong medications and then it made the situation worse. But um, my hope is that moving forward in the future that we see more of a connection between, you know, looking at the thyroid or other medical issues that can contribute to mood that we bridge these gaps. Saul, do you see a trend that this world is coming to get coming tighter together and that the space in between is shrinking at all? I mean, it's shrinking, I know, but, but is that a, is that general medical providers and mental health providers? I don't know. I don't have, I, I, I really don't know. I don't have data on that. I mean, I can, I can say from my own practice that, um, I think if you, you know, if you looked at my own practice, you would see me frequently talking to clients and families about, you know, seeing their primary care provider, um, referring them to their primary care provider as part of the mental health evaluation. When they come in to see me, I ask them, who's your primary care provider? When was the last time you had a checkup? You know, uh, if they haven't been to their primary care provider in a while, I say, you know, an important part of this evaluation is to see your primary care provider. I oftentimes will get their consent to reach out to that primary care provider myself to call them and have a conversation with them. Um, But vice versa, too. I mean, Mm -hmm. you go to the primary care provider and like they, you know, you felt the clipboard, your questions every time you go for an annual, whether it's an adult, a child a young kid, adolescent, or a, an adult to fill out something that says, are you feeling, which I do feel like is happening more. Yeah. They have about 10 yeah. questions right. on that. Uh, you know, what have you had? Chicken pox, blah, 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 all that stuff. But right. I, have you been feeling depressed? Have you been feeling, I mean, even in gynecology, I've seen they have that questionnaire when you go, you know, like you're, you know, you have this wonderful fear, open mind, and, you know, you're asking all the right questions in that direction. But the other direction, I hope it's I hope it's more and more and the world is coming together on that where there's they're asking the right questions to seek to see if somebody needs to right. go see Saul's Elon. You know, <laughs> yeah. they're not all coming to see me, please. Um, no, I, I think. OK, so, gosh, I mean, this is such a huge topic and there's so I many. Know, yeah, sorry, right. So let me back up just to one thing Julie said. And. Speaking as someone who was trained as a pediatrician, and I spent three years in primary Mm -hmm. care pediatrics, um, primary care providers are on the front line. We are on the front line. Now speaking, we, putting back on my hat as a pediatrician, we are on the front line. We are, when I was in primary care pediatrics in the winter, in the busy season, I was sometimes seeing 40, 50 patients a day. Wow. Wow. Okay. So we are trying to cope with a frontline position that is, shall we say, highly under-resourced. Yeah, We're oftentimes confronted mm-hmm. with being the first ones to see someone presenting with a possible mental health concern. We don't have enough providers to refer to, specialists to refer to. And so the primary care doctor is faced with the decision do I try and initiate a treatment with a medication doing the best I can? And yes, I think that more and more in the general medical world, uh, people are using some of these evidence-based questionnaires. And I think that's a good move. Uh, you have the P- 
PHQ-9 for uh, you know mood symptoms. You have the ACEs survey for uh, people who have experienced significant childhood trauma, which is a, a significant predictor and a significant factor in the development of mental health problems or emotional suffering, if you prefer that term. And so people are using those more and more to cast the net wider and wider. But the problem is, as you cast the net wider, you you capture more of the folks who are suffering this way, your ability to make distinctions between types of, of uh, mental health problems goes down. In other words, as your sensitivity increases, your specificity goes down oftentimes. That's a problem that people face. And so the primary care physician, who perhaps is now in air quotes, started the wrong medication, is truly doing the best they can with the resources they have. And this was one of my motivations for, for transitioning from primary care pediatrician to psychiatrist, is that I was constantly faced with this very issue with someone who you know comes in and, oh, we want to be tested for ADHD. Right. And I'm looking around for some kind of scientific basis to do this testing. And, and I'm perhaps not finding those resources, perhaps because I didn't get much exposure to them in my training. Or perhaps someone hands me a set of questions and tells me, go give them these questions. And I say, okay, but once I get the answers, how do I interpret yeah, right. them? Right. They, and they don't know how to tell me how to interpret them. Um, you know, as we talked about before, it's one thing to get a test result. It's another thing to interpret the test result. Those are two different stages in the process. And how do you go from a set of data, which are very clear on paper, whether it's a, a lab result or a set of questions that someone has answered on a questionnaire, how do you go from that to the interpretation? And so I guess what I want to say here is our entire profession is struggling with this question. And to a certain extent, it's a question of resources. The mental health world, I think, doesn't have enough resources. We don't have enough providers. Primary care providers are trying to step in and do the best they can, as I did when I was a primary care provider. And then I realized I don't want to do it this way anymore. I want to go get the training that will allow me to interpret the test results that will allow me to be the person who figures out how to use science to help people. That's what we're all trying to do as doctors. Mm -hmm. We're trying to figure out how to use science to help people. And I didn't feel I had enough training and enough resources as a primary care physician to do that, to satisfy my needs, to satisfy my goals. So that was a lot of information. I, I don't, I don't no, I appreciate like, it. And it, it, was a, it was a loaded question, you know. Um, it's a, it's an I, important question. But uh, I, I wanted to ask you because you do have the background in pediatrics and, right. you know, I'm was just curious your opinion and what you're seeing out there and how, and I'm not bashing pediatricians. They, they're no, no. wonderful. You know, I don't, I don't want I anyone to, to write us bad letters or anything, but no, no. Um, I, I do realize they're overburdened and they're doing the best they can with what they have. Right. You know, but it, it's definitely a struggle because I feel like there's a component that really is missing. And what if we're really dealing with a, a medical issue instead of a mental health issue? Right. Right. And, you know, again, um, when when people come to see me, I have a whole series of lab tests that I routinely do 
as part of my psychiatric evaluation. Wow. Now, like, like what can you, I mean, yeah, that's so interesting. Well, thyroid, for example, I think thyroid is definitely something that, you know, we want to evaluate for. Do you uh, do that initially? Like you, you know, you talk to someone who, I mean, it's right. That- it depends on the situation because, uh, you know, I have to assess how much evaluation they've already had. Uh, a lot of my clients are uh, struggling to just make ends meet financially. They uh, struggle oftentimes to get to see the doctor, and um, and 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 this is this is just something that a lot of my clientele are, are the reality that they're facing. And so I have to balance, uh, you know, how much how difficult is it for a family to get to the lab to get some testing done. How how often have they seen their primary care provider? Have they talked to their primary care provider about these concerns? Oftentimes, people will come into me and say, uh, you know, I'll say something like, you know, are you having a lot of headaches? And they say, oh yes, I've been having headaches for a long time. Well, what did your regular doctor say about those headaches? So I haven't talked to them about it. Okay, well, let's get that evaluated because headaches can be a significant source of emotional stress. And it's entirely possible that we could reduce some of your emotional suffering if we could get you some relief from your headaches. Um, So, you know, I as a provider have to be very aware of some of the so-called non-psychiatric conditions that can sometimes present in the mental health world. And I have to ask myself, how much of this do I want to pursue on my own and send them to the lab with a list of labs that I've come up with? And how much of this do I want to partner with the primary care provider? And maybe the primary care provider says, well, I think they need to see a neurologist about their headaches, something like that. So um, again, I think the complexity of the situation really makes it very necessary for us to work together as a team. We talked about that in my last uh, conversation with you all where dialectical behavior therapy is is a teamwork approach. I think in general, the mental health world needs to approach situations with a teamwork approach. I think healthcare in general probably approaches a lot of healthcare questions from a teamwork approach. Um, I forget what the original question was. Sorry. <laughs> it, doesn't I tend to it, doesn't, no, it doesn't matter. On behind our door, anything goes. We, we can yeah. ne- many times we can't remember the original question. I think it makes it, it means it's a great conversation. It does. But uh, this really is. I mean, it's uh, really interesting. You know, lastly, I know we go into, we kind of got sidetracked, but um, for, for our behind our door family that's listening, what, what are the signs or symptoms that if they feel like they're experiencing or the loved ones experiencing, should they seek some help to look to see if it may be borderline? Yeah, I was I was going to say oh. that because we we I feel like it's a teaser that we keep saying we're going to, you know, for, for a family member or an individual themselves saying, oh, good, there's a show on behind our door. I hate to say so I'll say it, but I think we might have to have you back a third time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but I. I, I agree. Like just just something on um, for the person listening that wants to know about this this tough you know diagnose tough to diagnose um, title borderline personality borderline disorder. Personality yeah. disorder. Sure. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. We can talk about borderline personality disorder. I, I mean, first of all, I want to back up and say that I'm not a fan of the the label. I'm not a fan of the title or the label or the. Mm-hmm terminology of borderline <laughs> or of other things of any of these and, well yeah any of them but i mean 
But specifically so this? The idea of a personality disorder, I, I don't I don't like that. I don't like the connotations of that language. Agreed. Mm-hmm. I don't like the connotation that that somebody can have something wrong with their personality. I, yeah. I just I it doesn't sit well with me personally. Um thank you for and, saying that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And 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 I don't know the history of coming up with that term. And and you know, I I don't I'm not interested in saying that whatever person or group of people who came up with that term was trying to hurt people. And it may have had a very different connotation at the time that people came up with it. I mean, language changes over time. Mm -hmm. Um, But to me, you know, at the age that I'm at and the environment I grew up in, it, it, it feels hurtful to me personally. So, so with that prefaced, um, let's talk about something perhaps a little bit more precise, which are, you know, what are the signs and symptoms that that we're trying to keep track of? Whatever we call it, right. what are we trying to keep track of? What, what type of emotional suffering and pain that humans tend to experience are we trying to keep track of so that we can do a better job helping them, so we can do a better job helping them recover and right. support them? Because a vast number of the people who have that diagnosis have experienced a level of trauma that is very difficult to to sit with. I I feel extremely sad. I feel extremely a, a lot of pain in myself when I when I hear about the history of trauma that people have been through. I feel a lot of empathy. Perhaps is what I'm trying to say. Um. And I truly want to help people. I want to do whatever I can to help people recover. So the signs and symptoms that we are trying to keep track of oftentimes relate to the strength of people's emotions. If you look at people's emotional profile, we can keep track of three criteria or three variables um, that are related to an emotional experience. How quickly does the emotional experience occur? That is, how quickly after the incident, whatever it is that got the emotion going, let's say it's a car honking their horn, how quickly does your emotion respond? Some people respond more quickly than others. How intense or strong is that emotional response? If we're to measure people's heart rates or their respiratory rate or their skin conductance or just ask them how they're feeling, some people are going to have a stronger emotional response to a car honking their horn as others. And to a certain extent, we think it just has to do with the physiology of the nervous system. You know, the brain hears the sound and it sends impulses to the heart that make the heart beat faster. And some people's heart is just going to beat faster in response to that event than others. So how quickly does it occur and how strong is it? And then the third parameter or the third variable is how long does that emotion stick around? Is that person still upset an hour later or did they return to their emotional baseline within five minutes? So three parameters, how quickly does it occur? How strong is it? And how quickly can they recover from it? And one way we think about borderline personality disorder in the DBT world is that there are people as I explained it, there are people who just have stronger emotions. Their emotions happen more rapidly, they're more intense, and they take longer to come back to baseline. And the term we use in, in the DBT world for that is emotional vulnerability. People are vulnerable to their emotions kind of taking over their lives. Because if you think about the person who's struggling with this super intense emotion for hours and hours after the car honked its horn, 
versus the person who is able to move on within five minutes, that's a very different experience of life. They're having a very different experience of their lives for the next few hours. And they may not like it. They may want that emotion to go away. They may want to get on with their day. They may be feeling like their emotion took over their life. That's what we're trying to capture with this term emotional vulnerability that the emotions can can kind of take over someone's life and the emotions are in the driver's seat as it were and and we know we know from studies of emotion that a little bit of emotion can be quite helpful that there's an optimal amount of emotion that helps us get things done in life but then when we get too much emotion we actually become less effective at getting things done so this might be a person who finds that they they can't function at work because of their emotion, truly can't function because of their emotion. They're not looking for an excuse. They're not trying to manipulate people. They're not trying to get out of work. They truly can't function. They want the emotion to go away and they want to be able to move on with their lives and accomplish their goals just like everyone. But they are vulnerable to their emotion taking over. And so this is the picture that we have that Marshall Linehan proposed of the emotional vulnerability, the challenge of emotional vulnerability to people who are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And I think this way of thinking about it for me brings up a lot of empathy. I have a lot of empathy and compassion because of course, I know what it's like to not be able to achieve certain goals in life. It may not have been because of my emotion. It might've been because I didn't get into the to the college that I wanted to get into, for example, or I didn't, uh, uh, I wasn't able to buy the, the book that I wanted to buy at the store that's very important for some research. We all have the experience of not being able to achieve our goals for one reason or another. But imagine what it must be like for someone to have their goals blocked because of something that they feel like is coming from within them. Imagine how frustrating that is. Especially when the world, the environment is constantly giving them the messages like, it's not so bad. Quit complaining. Don't take it so personally. Imagine the effect of those kinds of messages on someone who's experiencing emotional vulnerability. It makes the situation 10 times worse. Yeah, yeah I put my brain on. And so that's the way we tend to think about what I just explained to you is called the biosocial theory that we use in the, in the world of dialectical behavior therapy. That's the model. That's the working model we use for what people are coping with. This combination of emotional vulnerability combined with an environment that really just doesn't get it because they've never experienced it. And if you've never experienced it, of course, you don't get it. But the environment that doesn't get it and gives people messages like, it's not real, you're just making it up, you're just trying to manipulate me. None of which, in my experience, is valid. None of those messages are valid messages. I think that people who experience borderline personality disorder are not trying to manipulate me. They are trying to accomplish their goals in life and things are getting in their way. And it Marsha Lenahan has pointed out that it's actually an error in logic to think that just because one, someone feels manipulated, that the other person is intentionally trying to manipulate them. That's an error in logic. It may indeed be extremely painful to, to be 
in a relationship with someone who has been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, I will absolutely validate that. But I, I don't think that therefore that that person is intentionally trying to cause the people around them uh, pain and suffering. I don't. I think they are trying to solve the problem of emotional vulnerability in the best way they can. I've explained it so well. It's, yeah. it's definitely eye-opening. Um, do you, when, you know, when you've seen people with some of this, the whole descriptive that you're giving of sort of paralyzed with their own emotions at work or what have you, and you think it's sort of in this realm, is it always trauma or is it something that is biologically, you know, looking at the, the chemistry of the brain that can still cause this kind of thing? Or is it almost always, or I guess nothing is always, always, but is trauma oftentimes or at times not a part of this when you look that someone hasn't has indeed not experienced some traumatic event in their life but yet they have this emotional suffering in that realm well that depends on what you mean by trauma first of all <laughs> so well, we we could really take this to <laughs> yeah. another level. right as always it depends on what your working model is um of a particular term um we know that when we look at people who have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, a significant number of them, significant, 70, 80%, perhaps even higher, report childhood trauma. Okay. But the problem with that, and, and this is laying aside the question of what we mean by trauma, we can tackle that as well. But let's just look at the correlation. So people who have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder frequently report childhood trauma. Okay. But does that mean that childhood trauma is predictive of borderline personality disorder? That's a very different question. And this is a very common mistake. It's actually quite interesting that people have actually studied this. We could call it perhaps an error in logic that people make. That just because a condition has an association with something came before it, that came before it, so borderline personality disorder may have an association with childhood trauma that came before the diagnosis, it doesn't mean that the trauma is predictive of the diagnosis. You, you can't make that assumption, but a lot of people do in a lot of very interesting ways. And that's a whole other topic. Mm -hmm. So the question is, when you say, what's the relationship of trauma to borderline personality disorder? The question is, what question are you asking? Are you asking, do people with borderline personality disorder report childhood trauma? Yes. But I'm asking about the other 30%, let's say, you know, that, that don't report trauma. Don't, don't okay. report trauma. I mean, I know okay. we have to, you know, trauma, like that's a whole nother topic, right. but, right. but I'm just curious as to, to that side of it or that. The 30%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. Yeah. So what about the people who don't report trauma? What's going on there? Okay. Well, that gets to the question, I think, of what, what we what we learn to identify as trauma. Um, if you looked, delved into the data, and I don't have the statistics at my fingertips, but I'm just hypothesizing, you might find that the people who are reporting trauma, perhaps the nature of the trauma is uh, physical abuse or sexual abuse, that kind of trauma. Let's just say hypothetically. Whereas if you looked into the people who so-called, and this is in air quotes, don't report trauma, you might find, I'm just hypothesizing, you might find that they, they report other adverse experiences that don't fall into those categories of physical or sexual abuse, but are nevertheless 
still perhaps related to some broader definition of trauma. It could be that happened that they that was traumatic to that person. Exactly. Something that was traumatic to that person, but maybe doesn't fit our stereotype. For example, it could just be a child who's different from all the other children in the family. And because they're different, they're misunderstood. And because they're different, it's, it is painful for them to be held to the same standards as the other children in the family. That's painful to them. This is so interesting. And traumatic for them because the expectations don't get adjusted to meet their differences. And because the environment doesn't recognize their differences and adjust their expectations, they're constantly being told, you're not good enough. Why are you so different? Which is traumatic. Which is (laughs) traumatic. Exactly. It's traumatic to constantly, what's the term that's used? Gaslighting? Is that the term? Gaslighting, yes. Right? Like where where people people don't believe what you say about your subjective experiences, your own emotional experiences, simply because they don't recognize the difference in your experiences. So that could be trauma, but maybe people haven't learned to label it as trauma. And so of course they're not reporting it as trauma. Right. So that goes to the question of how we define trauma. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, my personal opinion is that trauma depends on the, on the person themselves, you know, something that's traumatic to you Mm-hmm. may not be traumatic to me and, and vice right. versa. So mm-hmm. it's kind of well, subjective in that way. Yeah, right, exactly. This goes back to the question of noise in mental health. How do we come up with an objective, so-called, again, air quotes, objective definition of trauma? Mm-hmm. It's not like we can do a blood test. I mean, maybe someday someone will come up. Who knows? Again, I'm just hypothesizing this is all science fiction, but maybe somebody will somebody will come up with a test that has a high degree of predictive value or high degree of correlation with, you know, this kind of very broad definition of trauma. But at the moment, all we have is what people tell us. Right. Yeah. And if people don't tell us about their traumatic experiences because they've learned that it's quote, not trauma again, in air quotes, using a lot of air quotes, (laughs) then we won't know about it. And if we don't know about it, how can we help people? Yeah. Wow. Saul, this has really been I've got to say, this is a, this is so thought provoking. The whole, the whole discussion is just something else. This is like, I'll be listening to this two or three times just to have it absorb. I mean, please please tell me as you do, if you, if you find me saying anything that you disagree with. Oh no. First uh, of all, I, I I hear about that. I so love so many, so many of the points you brought up so much of how you say it. Um, above everything, I love emotional suffering, you know, instead of mental illness, emotional suffering, boy, that really puts this, puts this in a place. It changes the whole conversation. It really does. That goes right to my heart. You know, that emotional suffering in place of mental illness. Um, it's just really, that was, that's a very special term. I thank Thank you you for that. And we thank you for the whole, all your time. Um, wow, this has just been something else. Cannot thank you enough. This is Dr. Saul Zeeland. Wow. And thank if you so people, much for the if invitation. If people need to find you, where, where should they go? <laughs> <laughs> Not um, physically. <laughs> <laughs> no. What if they, well, you know? um, 
I do teach for the uh, Family Connections Program with the NEA BPD. Okay. Want to give a shout out to them once again, the National yeah. Education Alliance for Borderline Personality Disorder. Um, I uh, currently work as a psychiatrist uh, for uh, the group Traditions Behavioral Health, um, which at the moment I am placed with the Marin County Youth and Family Services Program uh, in Marin County in Northern California. Um, so those are the groups that I uh, have kind of my primary uh, professional affiliations. I volunteer for the NMAPD, but it's um, it's definitely one of those. I think it's 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 an extremely uh, satisfying professional experience for me to really be able to work directly with the families and and hear what they say at the end of twelve weeks about how the program has changed their lives. Wow. Um, and working with Traditions Behavioral Health also. Uh, partnering with the county programs where we are offer, oftentimes offering services to the most underserved uh, uh, groups or, you know, the, the most underserved members of a community mm -hmm. in the county programs also is incredibly important to me uh, because, you know, I think that one of the challenges we face is that we have learned a lot about how to help people and, and, and therapies like dialectical behavior therapy have helped millions and millions of people, but there are also millions and millions of people out there who have not been reached by this therapy. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps they belong to uh, groups, demographics, uh, racial demographics that have not traditionally been able to access mental health treatments or those groups have not been adequately represented in studies uh, on the effectiveness of therapy. And so they may feel invalidated by the, by the therapies that have been studied on, on groups that they don't feel connected to. How to bring the therapy to the people that need it the most, who are oftentimes underrepresented and underserved in our communities, I think is the challenge that we are facing. Yes, I couldn't agree more with that. Yeah, well, may this, this conversation be spread all over the place and mm. and people to gain and grow from it because really interesting points so important thank you so much dr zeland yeah we thank can't you. thank you enough thank you for the invitation it's been a pleasure a pleasure too bye-bye don't forget you can find us on facebook twitter and instagram we welcome your input to contact us or any of our guests please email us at behind our door at mail.com. That's behind our door at mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening. Thank you.